0: You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today, I would like to, before I begin, just remind you, there's a website associated with this podcast called WealthFormula.com, and if you are interested in getting some of the other resources like, you know, various books and webinar, you know, downloads and getting on some of our special lists like our investor club, uh, head on over to wealthformula.com, check it out. Uh, today, I want to talk a little bit something a little bit different. I think it's it's different in the sense that, you know, this is a personal finance show, but listen, personal finance Ultimately, the goal of personal finance is to create some level of economic stability and provide you an opportunity to enjoy your life, right? Be a happy person and uh, right off into the sunset or something like that. And, you know, this has been something I've been thinking about a lot lately, you know. So let me ask you, when was the happiest time of your life? I mean, like when I say happiest, I mean... Inner happy type, happy that you know, just being like super excited and stuff. And the funny thing is, for me, when I really think about it, it's really about when I was a kid. So, my childhood was by no means like you know, was not all roses. I mean, I didn't grow up super rich or whatever, and it wasn't perfect family, whatever. But you know, the little things in life brought me a ton of joy when I was a kid. I remember riding my bike to friends' houses and knocking on their doors because that's what we did in the 80s. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't really even bother calling. We just knocked on people's doors and said, can you play? Anyway, getting a group of friends together for impromptu baseball games, street hockey, whatever, or just riding around on the bikes and going places we shouldn't have gone. We used to go to, like, some sort of old military, uh, you know, uh, place and in in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul area that, that was abandoned. I'm sure there was all sorts of chemicals there that uh, we shouldn't have been inhaling or whatever and playing on. But anyway, school too was fun, right? Elementary school felt like a camp. See your friends every day, play at recess, and I'll learn some cool stuff once in a while. No pressure, just, you know, pure routine, right? Nothing else, just kind of like going there every day, not really worrying about anything. And, you know, I had my intellectual curiosities as well. Okay, they were not maybe super high-end intellectual curiosities, but I was an avid reader of the sports page, the newspaper, would follow very closely what was going on in the NHL and the NFL. It was a virtual encyclopedia on all these issues. And it was pure joy for me to scour the library and book some famous athletes So, you know, that was, to me, that was like a super, super happy time in life. And then by the time high school rolls around, a lot of the joy of academics was gone. Sure, I was a good student, but, you know, it was like now it was about getting into good colleges and stress and worrying about the future. Well, at least I got to play sports still. So that was fun. I discovered girls, which brought a new level of interest for me uh, to be at school in the first place. And so that was fine. And while I kept a steady state of parting, going into college, my academic you know, work now became more and more of a job. I decided to go to medical school. I realized I couldn't afford to take art, acting classes, classes uh, that I wasn't sure I wasn't going to get an A in. So I just stuck to, as much as I could, advanced biochemistry, molecular biology, courses. Of course, that sounds funny to some of you, but yeah, I mean, that's what I knew I'd get the A in. So anyway, I wasn't doing any sports anymore at that point. I had no real intellectual pursuits outside of my job. I call it the job as a pre-med student, because all I did was study, um, you know, and and had an, and I was an organic chemistry tutor too. So I guess that was a job too. And then medical school is really just, you know, it was an extension of that specialization, really interesting but really specialize, not leaving much time for anything else in my life. So now the point of all this is I track these different times in my life and I can see the, quote, you know, inner joy levels dropping precipitously at each step. And why is that? Well, I think my drops, at least in inner happiness, seem to be correlated to the times in my life when I transitioned from, Enjoying the present time as a kid, uh, as a kid, as you know, like when you do when you're a kid, you you didn't you know you focus on what you're doing. You got a pickup game, knocking on people's doors, right? And then you 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 pretty quickly have to start thinking about the future and the trajectory of going to college and what are you going to do with your life and specializing, you know. And I spent so much of my life sacrificing the present for things in the future. Um, You know, I gave up my most of my 20s to medical school and surgical residency. I set my mind to create successful businesses and investments that I could make all the money that I wanted to make. But here's the thing, and this is going to happen. If it doesn't happen to you, it'll happen some point. I'm kind of Here. I'm here, right? Sure, I'm always happy to become richer. I, I, I'm not, you know, and and have more money. But I, I've already surpassed anything I thought I would, I would make financially. So now what? Right. Of course, I continue to keep doing what brought me here. But you know, there's other things in in life that are important. So, so what I did, and as I was starting to think back, is okay. Well, what are those things that? got me, you know, really happy as a kid. Maybe I should start seeing if I can reverse engineer myself back into having a little bit of that childhood mindset. So here are some of the major things that made me happy as a kid. I mean, I, obviously, it's a, real, a little redundant, playing sports. I was a good athlete. I even have one of those elite power athlete genes, according to my uh, my, my chromosome tests. Uh, two, being part of a community right? So I didn't realize how hard it was to make close friends once you, you know, once you leave a school situation. That's probably one of the things that they had to warn you about more when you leave school. Learning new stuff. And for me, this is critical. I need intellectual stimulation, man. If I'm not learning, I feel like I am dying. And, you know, I sit here and I am, you know, I'm buried uh, myself in you know, a lot of the macro economics, personal finance stuff, but there's a lot of other stuff out there to learn about. And the next one is focusing on gratification today. Okay. Now this is kind of funny because it's like the opposite of what everybody tells you, you know, delayed gratification is good and all that. We spend so much of our time planning for the future. I do. And I have that we forget to have as much fun as we can today. So yes, spend some of that money because you can't take it with you. Try to have some fun. So here's my plan, right? Here's my plan. I And this is brand new. So I'll tell you how, uh, I'll let you know how it's going later, right? Because I don't know yet, but I'm i gonna get uh, active in local sports leagues here. I'm gonna start volunteering in the community a little bit, try to get a little bit more community thing going I'm going to read a book about something random every week. And I'm going to buy some needless, fancy stuff uh, and not feel guilty about it. Because you know what? I'm not even kidding. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, it's it's like you, you got to enjoy some of this stuff uh, that you work for. Anyway, all this stuff I'm talking about has been on my mind for a while. Then I heard about the work of Frank Kyle. Uh, Frank is a researcher at Yale who's been studying the concept of wonder in childhood, and and he'll talk a lot more in detail on what that means. But I was intrigued by how these ideas could really be applied to this journey that I'm talking about now. Anyway, uh, Dr. Kyle's research on children and wonder is really fascinating stuff. He's got a great book out there that he's going to talk about. And it might provide you some of the ideas, uh, uh, some, some ideas for yourself on how to bring back some of that youthful vigor into your own spirit. So if you're looking for something like that, uh, you're definitely going to listen to this, bot, this, uh, this uh, discussion with Dr. Kyle that we'll have right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com These guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome, everybody. My guest today on Wealth Formula Podcast is uh, Dr. Frank C. Kyle, PhD, and he is uh, the Director of Cognition and Development lab at yale university he's also the author of a a recent book called wonder childhood and lifelong love of science and it's um well first of all welcome welcome to the show
1: frank thanks very much i'm eager to hear what you have to say yes
0: yeah so you know i'm i the reason uh, i thought this was a relevant show is is we talked a little bit offline i think you know we talk a lot about wealth and personal finance but a lot of it ends up being like how do you balance that and how do you you know is you know you mentioned you had a physician uh, some hard-working professionals and how do you balance that and you know how do you like look back at your life and try to enjoy it a little bit right and 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 that's why your topic seemed very interesting to me um why do you study what you do
1: well, I'll tell you why I studied wonder because that's what the book's about. And uh, I do a lot of different things, but that's a big focus recently. And one of the reasons is because it is an incredibly satisfying thing to do, and it's, we're wired to wonder. One of the great discoveries of the last 20 or 30 years of scientific research is that children, even before they can speak, uh, infants are out there making inquiries about the world through their explorations, and they're trying to understand the answers to why and how questions. Not just facts, but why and how questions. This is a ferocious desire to learn how the world works. And by the time they go to age four to five, some kids are asking up to 100 why questions a day. The crazy thing is that most kids, once they start school, they plummets to two or three questions a day, if that. This amazing drop. Not in everyone. A few people keep it alive and keep fanning it and with lifelong, tremendous, uh, intellectually exciting lives of wonder. And it doesn't matter in your profession. It's just a cognitive style. that You can't get get stomped out of you. So the book is about how this happens and how we can stop it, because it's doesn't cost anything to wonder. Wonder is immensely fulfilling. You listen to the lives of great polymaths and other scientists, and even non-scientists, and often the last thing they want to do in their life is learn more about how the world works. I'll give you lots of examples of like.
0: How are um, you know? You talk a little bit about um, you know the, the wonder, and obviously there is a um, part of the thesis is that this wonder in general, this joy, Describe first of all, describe that for me. What exactly is
1: wonder? It's very important to get the, the, my meaning clear because there are very different meanings over the centuries. What I mean is something that's sort of a blend of people like Rachel Carlson and Richard Feynman. It means a true delight in the complexity of the world and an um, eagerness to explore. It's not being stupefied in kind of a helpless awe. We go, oh, wow. I can't understand that, it's too amazing to even begin. It's just the opposite, it's, boy is that interesting, I wanna explore that. So it's a weird combination of intellectual humility and boldness, boldness and daring because you wanna think about it, wanna understand it, but humility because you realize how little you know. And and I think that's what's so special about it, it's an unusual combination, and that's the way I mean it. And that's the way kids show it early on. They're very, very excited to learn, but they also know they don't know.
0: So let's let's just in general, uh, if you had to generalize, how children's cognitive dispositions are different from adults? How would you, how, how would you? I
1: don't I don't think they're as different as people used to think. People used to think the kids were locked into earlier stages where they didn't have the computational or representational hardware that we do. And that's pretty much fallen out of, of a way and it doesn't seem to be true. What may be true is that they're not so um, cynical uh, about uh, and worried about what people think of them. So they're not as into social comparison so, if they look silly, they don't mind. And uh, they haven't sort of figured out that what they say might actually hurt them. It doesn't really, but they start worrying about that. And so I think they're just a little bit more exuberant. Uh, cognitively, I don't see any major limitations to young kids besides simply knowledge and experience, which we get them lots of if are good parents. What that means to your parents is you want to join in intellectual plus with them. You want to tell them what to know, because we don't know either. We want to be partners. Wonder is a social activity, it's not just lone rangers out there thinking about the world. Almost all the great scientists were social beings it's interacting with others trying to discover things together and creating great new insights
0: We can drill down a little bit on this idea that maybe this is um, I, I'm presuming um, from what you're saying right now that um, you your your thought is that largely the um, shift away from this wonder uh, from childhood is largely a uh, societal phenomenon not necessarily that it's hardwired
1: yes. That's exactly right. I mean, we know it isn't because there's, we go through, I go through the lives of a number of people who make, who don't shift down and lose the wonder. I also talked about, something like about Finland and how they completely revamped their school system really radically. It took them 10, 15 years to do it, but they made teaching one of the most elite, challenging professions you could have and respected it. And uh, they put much less stress on evaluating kids and more on independent exploration. And their PISA scores, international science ability scores soared among the top in the world. There's a very interesting literature on this. It's not perfect, and people make this kind of quasi-religious, pilgrimages to fill to learn their secret, but it's darn good. And uh, so that's an example of how a culture can shift. Um, other ones do it more demandingly through exams and, and studying 20 hours a day with tutors. That's not what I recommend at all. I want to be spontaneous choice, not to make them to hate.
0: Do you feel like there's a correlation between the joy of learning and the the sort of uh, uh, wonder wonderment and curiosity of the world uh, in is a core. Is it correlated to happiness in children?
1: I think so. Uh, That's not been proven. That's not an empirical happiness is so hard to define. It's a little tricky, but let me give you an example. When you wonder about something, you're sharpening your lenses and how you see the world. I've, been really working with some students here in, Yale in the seminar, how to understand maybe the natural phenomena related to spring. What do birds sing? What happens their their song, brain song? Bird song brain nuclei swell it seems to how does it happen? How do certain plants break through the frost? And when I go outside and look around at me at spring, it is such a richer experience than it used to be before. I'm seeing a 3D technical kind of world before I saw a black and white, gray fuzzy one. So I use the metaphor sharpening lenses. Who wouldn't want to have a more crystal clear, more technical lens in the world? That's what one that brings you, because it gives you deeper interpretive structures. And and so that's joy. I think it's incredibly fun. I actually make a point with my students to say, if you're not learning something new once a month, or even changing your mind about something which you thought was pretty important, you're not working hard enough, because you can't know things that well. You should be really working. You should set targets and evaluate yourself. That may seem ambitious, but once you get into habit, it's very easy. Um, are, do you
0: feel that... Um... I mean, is there examples? I'm I get, I'm I'm still curious about this ability for, you know, people to potentially carry that, um, or resurrect that kind of joy, into adulthood. Because I I feel like you know, um, in in thinking about talking to you today, I mean, I I just I know what this is. I know what you're referring to because I remember it as a kid. I, I to a certain degree, I think I even remembered it being a little bit older kid, you know, but I, I was a little bit more of a, as you, as you would describe as a polymath. um.
1: But you went through the gauntlet too. You were a board certified surgeon and and a few things will stamp out wonder faster than that. So six, six or seven years of fellowships and residencies doing 70 hour weeks. So you, you're pretty resilient to come out of that. Um, And, and what I think you need to do is ask, why am I doing this? There's a lot of work on motivation. Did I come into this just to, to get a title or to get a lot of money? No, I did it because I wanted to have a, a lifestyle where I could explore and learn and grow. We don't, we don't, you know, you know that you can't take it with you. Wealth only isn't a tool to enable you to do those things in its own right. It's nothing. And so wonder is, I think, one of the most fascinating things we can do. And uh it's not hard to grow it if you have children or you, have, you know children. Don't ask them fact questions, ask them why and how questions and confess them your own ignorance. Ask open ended questions. Don't say questions that we have yes and no answers. Have ones like ask them to libraries and do it as a team. So I remember as a kid, a friend, whose parents, every dinner would pose these really fun sort of brain teachers that no one had the answer to. Not us, not them, anybody, we'd puzzle them. My parents did sort of the same thing, but they are a bit more evaluative. This one was much more open-ended, and I love that. So there are the activities you can do with kids. You can talk to them a certain way. You can find science teachers who are inspirational rather than evaluational. Well, I had a science teacher as a child who just blew me away. He taught everything in the history of science, so he taught about internal combustion engines, which at that point were the car engine. From the evolution of explosion of chemicals back in China and firecrackers, to cannons, to steam engines, he did a whole chronological story and how it came together to make piston engines. And about the same time as a traditional science curriculum. And it made it so real, so fascinating, so human. And I remember every lesson he took as a kid in the fourth and fifth grade. And those kinds of teachers can make a difference. So if you see them, grab a them and hold on them for your kids.
0: I'm curious in terms of the, if this is a you know a, a change that's caused by society rather than them being hardwired. Are there are there other cultures? Um,
1: well, I mentioned the Finnish culture. The opposite, the, Finland. The, the opposite cultures would be those that are so intense on evaluations and testing. And I, by the way, I'm not against standardized testing. I think we have to get a sense of merit. There's a whole other issue. I'm not an expert on, but I read on a lot. I do with merit and economic strength. I'm sure you know about, and read about this. So I, I think it's a complicated issue. But if kids feel they're being evaluated the only reason they're learning is to get a, a lot of wrong, that stifles motivation. Motivation has to be saying, I want to do this because I do it, not because of an external reward. I want to learn because it's fun and I have a richer life experience. So if you are in a culture where achievement is important and it's a meritocracy, they can have that, but you have to also remind them that part is just the joy of learning. And it's a tricky balance. I don't mean to underestimate it you know, you went to good schools, I went to good schools, you have to work very hard and do well on those tests, but you have to ask, why am I doing this? And your parents have to take the right attitude.
0: But also, I, I think there's a, um, in some respect, and I'm sure you've addressed this, but there's this, th- there's almost a little bit of a negative feedback loop sometimes when you start associating those uh, years in your life where all you did was study stuff like that and, and, and becomes a sort of Rather than something of wonder becomes something of a um, a job. <laughs>
1: yeah. It, well, uh, Mark Mark Lepper, a psychologist at Stanford, years ago wrote a paper called "Turning Play into Work," and, and that's what you can do. Any kind of external reinforcement, whether it be money or praise or gold stars, you have to is really a dangerous thing to do. You have to because people say, "Why well, am I doing this?" Oh, for that reward, not because I like it. They're paying me to do this. It must be really wretched that I do this. So you, it's okay. You can get around that, but you have to take the mindset. I would do this anyway. Isn't it great that I also get paid? And, and you have to kind of rethink why you're doing it and think about, do I really love to do this? And keep reminding yourself of that. That's a very important way of thinking about it. And parents can help or people around you can help, be models.
0: Um, how has uh, technology impacted wonder? I mean, obviously when you're talking about children who may not even be of reading age or whatever, that, you know, that maybe it's, it,
1: but-, but, but. Oh, It's a big question. I think it's a huge issue. I had a section of the book on this where I talk about the kids of today, the teenagers may be losing all sense of the mechanistics or mechanisms undergird our reality. Uh, for example, I had a 1963 Triumph Spitfire, which was a beautiful, wonderful car, but always broke down. But I know every piece of that car, because you could buy a thin manual, like a thin phone book, and see every single part. It had no transistors because the radio was broken. Now, a Mazda Miata, which is about the same size today, has several billion transistors. Everything's encased in these blocks of silicon. You can't see a thing. I have a class of seniors I taught this spring. Yale seniors, I think the best anybody could do in that class of, of mechanics was change a tire. Most of them couldn't. But a change a tire in a car. In my high school generation, they could take about everything. So the world is becoming a mechanism desert in terms of easy inspection. Whether it's toasters, which are now all solid state, or light bulbs or anything, that used to be easily transparent to how it worked. is all disappearing. And that's one of the great engines of wonder having a working vocabulary of basic mechanisms. If you don't know some idea of the basic machines that even the Greeks knew about and how they make the world walk along, you just skate on the surface. You're in deep trouble. Kids think they can code and that's what they're doing instead, but they can't code most of them. You talk to people in Silicon Valley and these kids usually come out knowing sort of how to use operating systems, but not the basic coding. So I think we're losing the battle if we're not careful. We're getting basically kids who can't do very well. They say, oh, I'll just Google it. But they don't know how to Google. They don't know where to look. They don't know how to evaluate fake news and real news. I think it is actually a very important topic, and, and we cannot abandon this and assume we can just look things up. Google is empty if you don't know what you're looking for.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is it, it is one of those things I think that it, it's curious to me because, on, on the other hand, obviously, you have the ability to, you know, if you have access to a computer or a smartphone or whatever, you get actually learn about things all sorts of things that if if you wanted to, when I was uh, in elementary school, we'd have to hit the stacks and you know, microfiche and all that. And-
1: but the key, the key word is learn all sorts of things. What happens today is you get misdirected so much for the software on the internet. that's designed to send you to extremes to get you to clickbait. So try to look up something about health, try to look up whether vitamins are good for you, uh, which are mostly almost 95% of the vitamins people take out a section book on this are completely in your diet or they're, just, they're simply unnecessary. It's a huge multi-billion dollar uh, economy. And people are unable to evaluate it because when they go through Google without a sophisticated lens, without any sense of how things work, any sense of biological mechanisms, of ceiling effects, they get they get lost. And it's whether it's global warming or health, I mean, health is the most fascinating case. It's an enormous part of our economy and most people have the most distorted or impoverished sense of how to evaluate what claims are made.
0: How can you restore wonder or can you practice strengthening wonder Is there yeah, in, I, in adults? I, I, I do this
1: with seniors have uh, a senior seminar for department seniors on wonder. And I make them come up with uh, something that they haven't thought about ever and learn about it. And, and, and So what, how, do, how do birds sing songs? turns out they don't have vocal cords. They have this thing called shrinks is where they have two little sort of muscular systems there. They can actually do uh, duos on you know, one throat. And they have a whole different way that's evolved. And so when they learn that, they just they, they come alive. And every week they have to make a five, ten minute presentation about something they've never thought of before, and then talk about what how it's changed them. And almost all of them find it incredibly rewarding and fun. And then they start taking on more and more. So you just get people to practice that. You pose questions. It's best of pose questions you know the really answer to. So next time you talk to you, assume you have, you have kids. I do.
0: I have three little so girls. Time, yeah, how, old, how old are they? 13, 9, and seven. And yes, perfect. They next are time you're very... going see. Very curious, very curious. And that's good. They haven't
1: had yeah. kind to of stomp out yet. them <laughs> questions at dinner, them questions, which you don't know the answer to. Yeah, and 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 there's so many fascinating things. I have a third of his who, the granddaughter who's extremely curious, and she's made me learn all sorts of things I've thought of before. So,
0: yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So I'm curious. Also in your in your adult, tell tell me a little bit about the studies like that you've done. Like I mean, I'm curious if you can give us some examples of. Sure. Um, since we, we do have sort of a scientific bent. Well, I'll start with some very young ones because yeah.
1: this is one of the studies we did. Others have done similar studies. It just blew me away. It's a little hard to describe, so I'll go a little slowly. Imagine, I'll, I'll give you a metaphorical case. and we going to the precise stimuli the if you want. Imagine you come into a room and uh, everything is strewn all over the place. It's a complete mess. It's like your adolescence nightmare. Uh, you know, all the toys, all the clothing. it's this big mess. And now you see a... Uh, a ball roll into the room, and the ball leaves. It's an inanimate ball, and it's all suddenly ordered. you think that would be crazy if you saw a very newly ordered room and you saw a big, huge, you know, medicine ball roll in, and here, going around and around, come out, and everything's a mess. That makes sense. So you can go from order to disorder with either an animate agent or an inanimate agent, but you can only go from disorder to order with an animate agent. We created those scenarios and videos with kids who couldn't speak, 11-month-olds and they would be shocked when a ball could create order, but totally unsurprised when, when an intentional agent could. And so there's almost like the idea about entropy and only an, intentional agents can create order. And they get this at some intuitive level and replicate in some other labs before they can even speak. That's probably the most profound example. Uh, and and I, we did a lot of work on that. We've done work with three and four-year-olds showing their most fascinating mechanism, not by facts, not by even function, but they want to know the clockworks. That's what they find the most satisfying. That's what they think is the most interesting and most sustaining. They think that someone who has that kind of knowledge has the most power to make generalizations and learn about other things. They get it. And uh, so we do lots of studies on that. What kind of information do kids find attractive? What can they learn the most from? And what context is it most powerful? One of it is the social context. We've done work on cooperation versus competition and argument. Arguing to win versus arguing to learn. In too many cultures, people think the only point of argument is what lawyers do. You're trying to smash the other guy. But arguments are incredibly powerful vehicles for learning cooperatively. I have lab meetings once a week. We argue all the time, but it's not to beat the other person. It's to build something by testing each, stress testing each other's ideas. I think the most successful companies and corporations, venture capital, whatever, they're always arguing, but not to destroy each other, to try to figure out what are the weaknesses, what are the and probe and figure out how to make things better together, and that's a mindset thing that you can do, and we have data on that showing that you can induce one kind of mindset versus other and make a huge difference. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, good stuff, um, Dr. Kyle. This is uh, this has been really fun. Um, again, the book is Wonder, uh, Childhood, and uh, the Lifelong Love of Science. Um, I know it's a available on amazon and and the, I assume the rest of the usual outlets
1: yes it's it's everywhere and kindle and also hard copy i'll give kudos to my artist who made an artist at the, at the press publisher made a gorgeous cover so i recommend the hard copy
0: and um yeah good and then it's obviously uh written in a manner where you know you don't have to have a significant science background it's just you have to have some wonder, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to.
1: I think you'll find it rewarding if you've never had a word of psychology, as long as you read it with care and interest, and in you, in you can learn more about the world. And we all should. It's, it's universal.
0: Thanks for coming on Wealth Formula Podcast, Dr. Kyle. Thank you very much for having
1: me. We'll be right
0: back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, I know it's not a personal finance show, but again, we have to sometimes figure out what it is, is what exactly it is that we're trying to do here. Like, you know, the reason we try to try to make enough money uh, and have personal uh, success and personal finances ultimately so we can enjoy our life and we're not, you know, most of you, pretty much everybody who listens, to this podcast is smart and has a lot of interest. And I think. If you go back and you try to think about the things that made you happy when you were younger and try to implement more of those things in your life as you can, as you start making more money, I would encourage you to do so. And then maybe we can uh, we can check back and see how each other are doing. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.
1: Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com.
0: The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.